From New York City, the Comedy Cellar and Rethink Production present Live from America Podcast. We will make America great again. How about new, you crazy Dutch bastard? Live from America Podcast. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. No, 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 no. Excuse me. Just so you understand. We can't be the stupid country anymore. Live from America podcast. I believe we can keep the promise of our founding. The idea that if you're willing to work hard, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from or what you look like or where you love. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian or Native American or young or old or rich or poor, able, disabled, gay or straight. You can make it here in America if you're willing to try. It's just words, folks. It's just words. This is Live from America Podcast with Noam Dorman and Haddon Gab. Well, good evening and welcome to the Comedy Cellar, the best comedy club in the world. And we are back. We were never gone, actually, but we, uh, sounds good to say we were back. Um, and uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays, Hanukkah, and... Uh, Just... I like to, what? <laughs> what? I, I, I like to say that I'm a Jewish friendly. I'm going to give a hot We're waiting for you to get his name wrong. Go ahead and do it. Oh, God. What's the best game show? Jeopardy. You won Jeopardy, right? I won Jeopardy. I Jeopardy did. is the best game show because they say good evening and they get to it. What was the best uh, political talk show? The Glockland Group. Uh-huh. Said, Welcome... Issue one. So just do the introductions. Let's let's get on with it. Go ahead. Good, Good oh evening, everybody. And uh, let's get with it. <laughs> Who's our guest today? Let's get with it right away. We have a, a very yeah. special guest, and we don't want to waste a minute without... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, forgive me if I say that last name wrong, because I always do it. If I, want to see you, I want to see you get his middle name right. Uh, oh, God. I want to that's hear the your mi- name. That's my name. It's your name, too. We have the same middle name. Yeah. Oh, really? John Podhertz. Mordechai Podhertz. But Horitz. Yes, I'll introduce myself. There okay, you go. please. Welcome, please, please John Mordecai Podhoritz. Okay, listen, this is a, this is a, this is an important day for me. Well, they they've been scaring me the whole day because you are they're very happy that you're here and they're just putting all the pressure on me to say the name. So okay, that's by it. the by the time this is over, they're not well, gonna be so happy. <laughs> oh no, because first of all, let me tell you, I'm a huge admirer uh, admirer of Thank yours, you. as was my father. And, um, I listen to your, your, your podcast, um, almost every time it's on, I, you know, every time I work out, I adore your podcast and I don't, I don't have any firm views until I hear what you have to say about things. Now, it doesn't mean I always agree with you, but I have to, I have to have an answer before I will decide, no, I, I don't agree with him. I, so well, that's, that's a, that's a great honor. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. My podcast. Uh, is uh, we we do it? I was going to say broadcast, but of course it's the opposite of broadcast. My podcast is we do we do it twice a week at Con. You can uh, find it on iTunes. It's the Commentary Magazine podcast. Oh, for the best, expect the worst. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. so we begin with and, Mel Brooks's theme song from the Twelve Chairs. And and I do want to ask you a, like a personal question. I've always wondered this. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a father who was a very like towering figure in in this world. And to this day, you know, I mean, you can't go through a day without people to, and you had a father, he's still have, alive, he's your father, alive. your father, yeah. father who is, and your father's death anniversary is, uh, is coming yeah. soon, is yeah, coming yeah. right up, yeah. Uh, uh, 
um, Norman Podhoretz, who was one of the most influential thinkers of the last 50 years. I, I, that's not an exaggeration. I used to read him uh, religiously. And there's a certain psychology of a person who has a father on that level. And I think it can go either way. You see, like, like Ronald Reagan's son seems to reject his father, finds it unbearable in a sense. And, uh, and I grappled with that. Did you, mm-hmm. is, is it too personal? Did you grapple no. with that? No, I, uh, I love my dad and he was, uh, he's a very, uh, kind and, uh, loving father and gave me absolutely no reason to reject him. Not that I am saying your father may have been otherwise no, or that Ronald wanna, Reagan was otherwise, yourself, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I, I found different ways to prove myself, um, be, though I enter, I entered the world in which he, in which he, uh, labored. I mean, I became, I was a writer. He was a writer. I was an editor. He's an editor. I've, I en- ended up at the age of 48, um, editing the same magazine that he edited 15 years earlier. Um, but part of the trick for me was taking a different type of course. He was a you know, he began sort of uh, in a kind of highbrow academic atmosphere, uh, you know, didn't get his Ph.D., ended up working for uh, influential, very small magazines. Um, and I went into mainstream journalism. That was what I did. And I wrote, didn't write about highfalutin topics. I mostly wrote about popular culture in my early days and I still do partially to pay the bills. Uh, was, so. was that also your way of, of, tr- of staking out your own path? Probably. And also, you know, I started writing about the movies. That was the first thing that I started publishing about pretty young. Like when I was 18, uh, in the late seventies, um, and doing that for a long time gave me the confidence uh, as I educated myself in more serious topics, so it was really only when I was in my mid to late twenties that I started writing or feeling competent to write about more serious political, intellectual, ideo- ideological topics. So I got my feet wet in something that I could master <laughs> more readily, like popular culture. Um, and it's interesting, you know, because I, I I just wrote. Uh, a long piece about this for somebody else. So it's on my mind that, you know, when I started writing about this in the late seventies, the movies, which is what I wrote about as an art form were really only 60 years old. And the talkies were really only 50 years old and you could kind of have them mastered. You could, as a teenager, you could have sort of seen most of, particularly mm-hmm. if you lived in Manhattan, as I did and could go to revival houses, like right. we're sitting here in Greenwich Thalia. village the Thalia, the Bleecker Street Cinema, which would have been around the corner from where we're doing this now, the Elgin, the yeah. Carnegie Hall Cinema. I mean, there were like a whole bunch of them. So you could really kind of educate yourself and competently talk about the history, what was good, what was bad, all sorts of things like that. And now it's like 40 years later, and there are many more movies made, <laughs> four decades more. And uh, I noticed that uh, and I would have found it more daunting. I notice people don't really seem to care, though. Everybody has an opinion about, you know, whatever movie they see. And mm-hmm. it's also true in journalism in general or in, on the web. You know, a 17-year-old kid feels perfectly competent to write a blog about what's going on in politics with absolutely no sense of and get yeah. traction. shame and can get traction, <laughs> right? Um, so that was what I did. So I sort of 
went at it in a different way. I also write funny, which my father never did. <laughs> um, uh, or I try to write funny or I, I write in a much more a looser and more conversational style. So, but I never felt any pressure. I wasn't intimidated. I felt a lot of pressure. Most of it was probably internally generated, but I wasn't intimidated by the example and I didn't feel competitive, which I think is what is the worst thing is yeah. my sense is that feeling like I need to, I gotta, I gotta match him. I gotta best him. I gotta be better than him. I gotta be as good as, you know, like that. I didn't feel he was very, he's always been very supportive and encouraging and respectful and uh, full of praise and that more than anything else. I'm a father of three. Uh, you know, well, my oldest is 13 and that is essentially where I expect to direct my energies as a father, having had this experience of trying to look for the best in them and make them feel good about what they do. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, it's funny, I can't remember much of when, and it's specifically what anybody's written, but I remember something that your father wrote in some article about something unrelated where he talked about being a grandfather and I found that he was crying at the drop of a hat. Now that I don't know if you remember that mm -hmm. he said, "I yeah. this, the the waterworks that turn on as I go." And I yeah. and that was very poignant to me. He reminded me of my father and my family. And, and now that I'm a dad, uh, he he had your your father has that ability to write in a very uh, personal way. I can't explain it in, in, in right. something in a, on a topic that has nothing to do with that. Yeah, he well, stayed I think, with me all I these think years. that was a piece he wrote called "In Israel with Grandchildren." Yes. Yeah. And um, oh, I was good. Uh, and, uh, I was good till now. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but yeah, no, it's uh that was a that was a very personal essay yeah. and that's one of the kinds of things that 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 he wrote. But but sort of intellectually and ideologically we were very similar. So there was no there was no that didn't feel the um, you know, Oedipal hunger to, you know, to kill, vanquish him. kill my yeah. vanquish him intellectually or whatever. Uh and that, you know, so that you um, had the I, I have I have a question about the period when you were writing movies. I know I you, still do. By the way. Yeah, yeah, you, you still. Yeah, yeah, I know. No, but when you were young, I I, uh, I, I think at the age of seventeen or something, I, you wrote, and I remember in an interview you said you don't remember writing that, but you wrote that the um, the more artistic uh, the person is, the more the the worse he becomes as a person. <laughs> I remember. I don't so, remember because of these days. That, but it's an interesting. You point, did research. Though. That, that's amazing. I, I wish well, I what could. What do you do uh, in the hospital? Go ahead. No, but I think that's an interesting, I mean, you know, th this is a real issue, right? Yeah. That, you know, sort of we're in this position now where we are, we are being asked to judge people, uh, artists, uh, in part on their personal behavior. Exactly. And if we did that throughout history, there would be very few people that we would respect for their private lives and the way they behaved, most of them, a lot of them behaved quite appallingly. And um, I thought, you know, part of what I think about this whole thing, particularly in the field of comedy and all that is anybody who looks to a writer, a creative person for uh, as an, as a, as a human being behind the work that they create as an example, as someone to respect and admire and to be led by and all of that is doing something very foolish that what's important about the, the, the artist is the work he creates and not who he is as a person. And the idea that the, 
mm-hmm. that an individual person is going to be better than other people because he's more gifted as a writer. He's more brilliant as a thinker. He's mm-hmm. more uh, substantive as a, as an analyst um, is a mistake because that, that assumes that somehow human quality, personal good qualities of people uh, are connected to their uh, freakishly, uh, their freakish achievement. Like mm-hmm. most people can't write a novel or do stand up comedy or be Louis C.K. or anything like that. They they can't do it. But we can all masturbate. <laughs> yeah, I think I get your point. <laughs> May I? Yeah. Yeah. Wait, not finished. Go ahead. But I'm just saying. So most most people can't do that. But obviously, there are wildly and amazingly admirable people who do nothing. You know, who have no creative it, gift, it, it, but are just good people and mm-hmm. and we we have this hunger to connect our ideas about what's good with what we admire aesthetically or creatively and it's a terrible mistake it always leads as it often does with politicians too same thing well i had this argument with him i I said i said because i was not particularly bothered by the the more thing but for reasons that not as bad as it sounds i'm like well david bowie was sleeping with 14 year old jimmy page i mean uh, uh, the outrage you know, I know you're going to disagree, but to me, <laughs> to me, the outrage is always false. Like if I had a kid in a charter school and the charter school was turning his life around and the candidate who wanted to close the charter school was wonderful and the candidate who vowed to keep it open turns out he groped children of 40, I would vote for the one to keep the charter school open. You know, and, you and, know, there's and, this play, yeah. John Patrick Shanley's play Doubt. Uh, yeah. Not the movie, because the movie's lousy, I think, but the play. So the play posits this thing where this nurse realizes that there is this priest who runs the school where they both work, who is likely Touching. misbehaving with boys. Mm-hmm. And one of the boy that she's most worried about is a is a little African-American kid. And the mother of the kid comes to the comes to the nun who is wrestling with this question of whether she will expose him or go after him. And she says, the mother says, just let him get through sixth grade. Let him, let let him go on. He's let him, you don't know what it's like at home for him. You don't know what his father, how his father beats him. You don't know this. You don't know that. This is a very complicated situation. Um, Let him be. And the, the nun decides she can't do that morally. She, and that this plea goes on, you know, this plea, fundamentally she can't accept that she should turn a blind eye, even when the kid's mother says she should turn a blind eye. And these things are, can be, they're not often, but they can be very complicated. I'm not sure that Roy Moore, uh, you know, uh, picking up a 14 year old girl and telling her he's going to drive her home and then pulling over and, and feeling her up is morally complicated, but well, there are, is. there are circumstances. It is because it's the same era when Elvis Presley was, was Priscilla Presley at 12 and Jerry Lee Lewis and South and Alabama had all these child marriages. And well, it's not like Jerry Lee Lewis got off scot-free marrying his 13 year old cousin. I think like it's cause he, it was his cousin was the issue more co- than but no, the, the, but she was also 13 like it, it yeah. kind of ruined his career. Yeah. Well, I mean, it wasn't it didn't ruin Elvis. Kind of, didn't well, ruin. <laughs> I mean, Elvis supposedly courted her and did who knows? I mean, it's true. It's I keep telling now. people, I constantly tell people, you you grew up in New York. I grew up, You have no idea wh- what this city was like in the 70s when I was <laughs> I growing you, up. I like people were, there is somebody who is in the news right now as a molester 
uh, you know, I don't want to name him, but um, he was having an affair at the age of 40 with a girl in my high school. Um, I, you know, I mean, people sort of knew it. Uh, there was a girl in my class who was sleeping with the swim coach at our school and everybody knew yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, Miss Olsen was, was sleeping with Joey DiDonato. I, I remember these things. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. No, so, so these things were happening and it's complicated because people don't realize the, the, the moral, uh, calculus changed. Like there's a lot of talk about, you know, horrible things going on in these private schools in New York in the 1970s where male teachers were, you horse know, were, man. Were, yeah, horse man and where they were sort of recruiting and then sleeping with, their male young male students and the schools have been, you know, accused of covering it up and being terrible and all of this. And I think in those cases, I don't know why we're talking about this, but in those cases, there was a thing going on where part of the calculus was they didn't want to cut this to come out because it would destroy the kid's life. Now, today, we wouldn't blame a 14 or 15 year old or would not single out or would sort of celebrate the heroism or something of a kid who was put in that kind of position. But a 14 year old kid being known in 1975 as somebody who had been, who had been diddled with by an older man was somebody who would have like the mark of Cain on him. And part of the calculus must've been, we just want to get him off and off to the side because we got to protect the kid from becoming a pariah and a figure of sport and disgust in the world at large. That's what's complicated about this is that uh, my friend Ross Douthat, who writes for the New York Times, says the weird thing about the 1970s when a, you know as a lot of this stuff happened more and Dustin Hoffman and various other people is that you know it was like the 60s. All the more all the sort of old morality had had gone away. And it was just like free for all sexuality and none of the boundaries had gone up yet. So AIDS brought a series of sexual boundaries where you weren't you were going around and sleeping with people so readily because it could actually kill you. And sort of feminism started rising and saying, you know, no, you can't touch women this way and you can't do this and you can't do that. And it was just this kind of period of it was crazy. It was crazy here. Like Woody Allen made this movie about how he was a morally he was a morally uh, sacrosanct person because he was sleeping with a 17 year old at the Dalton school and his friend who was, who had stolen his girlfriend from him was worse because he stole his girlfriend. That was morally unacceptable. It wasn't that but being was a 42, being a 42 year old man sleeping with a 17 year old girl was okay. Cause she was so pure and wonderful. Yeah. This is Manhattan. So that, that's, that is my point. Like yeah. I, I said to him, if he loses, he should lose because of the racial remarks that he made, which he's making today and are unacceptable today. Yeah. The, but the, the crew that, that was standing for Roman Polanski and turn their blind eye to Clinton and, you know, every one of these examples to, to now look at more and, and, and essentially fake outrage. Uh, it doesn't move me, you know, I mean, look, I, I was I, against, I, I, the they want. before more, before the stories about his sexual predation came out, he was already going to be the worst person. He was going to be one of the most potentially, possibly the most extreme person ever elected to the U S Senate ever in 
all 204, you know, all and that's a bad uh, whatever. Thing. That's bad. Okay. <laughs> I would say that's bad. Extreme, irresponsible, you know, uh, ra- you know, racist. Kind of crazy, uh, okay, right? And crazy. Did you talk about guys. putting homosexuals his, his, to death? No, but his wife straightened it all out on that conference. She did. That's right. That's she, right. She cleared it all out. She did. She did. Let's get to our law. Okay. One of our anyway. lawyers. So, and, and, and I feel like you know, senators vote <laughs> yes, vote no, and people should have. And really, when you're voting for a senator, I mean, his vote was not going to be any different than any other Republican, probably. And they, and they, I feel like there's a certain right to have. I want to vote. I want that vote, as opposed to a president whose character really comes into their job in a totally different way, where you have to really, I think take a much closer look at a president's character. I think there's a lot to that. I mean, I do think that, you know, look, individual, uh, in the end, I was sort of sympathetic to the notion that after, if after everything, the people of Alabama had voted for Roy Moore, the idea that the Senate should, you know, expel him for being a, for being a horrible guy would have been, uh, you know, a betrayal of our debt. Like they knew, they knew, and they made the choice anyway. And just because you don't want to sit with them, you don't have the right to, you know, sort of like overturn the results of an election, you know, according to our constitution, just because you don't like this, you, you don't, you don't like the guy. Because you changed your mind about uh, a sexual matter in the last 40 years. Something like that. Yeah. I, I have a question. Uh, one and you know, one last one. Uh, you, you started off by saying that people who hold, celebrities to these higher moral standards are it's essentially a fool's errand but do you uh hold politicians to a different standard of morality than you do uh people who are in the public eye in general well one of the there are two there are two it, it strikes me that if you take donald trump as an example uh everybody in america knew about him on election day and they voted and he won sufficiently in the right way to become president. It's not like anything was withheld. Pieces of information weren't known. Mm -hmm. He's sitting there in the, in the oval office and there he is. And so, uh, I think in these cases, it's a rare case with politicians or elected politicians that the voters get to decide whether they want this one or the other one, as long as they have sufficient information to judge them and they're the ones who pick. So, you know, uh, essentially kicking, no one's really saying they want to do this, but kicking Trump out of office because of the, the accusations of these 15 women seems to me to be insane bringing it up to sort of to remind people and to keep uh the anti-trump forces um you know passionate about how much they hate him that's ordinary politics that's totally conventional you know that's a totally conventional way of pleasing your side and keeping their outrage up and raising money from them and all of that but do i think that we should hold them to a higher standard i Again, I think if you were to look back at, you know, FDR was having an affair with the secretary, you know, all of that. Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, Mm -hmm. yeah, like was a plagiarist and and an adulterer. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I don't think that it's. they admired him. Right. And I, I don't think that it's right to, I think it's a mistake to think 
I'll say it differently. It is a mistake to think that people you like for reasons that you like because you like their books, you like their movies, you like their acting, they're funny, or you like the policies that they espouse. You like the politics that they pursue. You like how they, their views are in congruence with yours to then assume that they're better or that they're good because their views are in congruence with mm-hmm. yours. That's a yeah. horrible mistake. And, and it is a natural mistake. It is what we do. You know, it's, it's in the, you know, it's in the, the Bible. It says place, not your trust in princes. You can't trust you know, you're only, you're, you're only, you know, d- d- my religion, Judaism is all about the evil of idol worship and you are not supposed to worship human beings. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to worship human beings or their representations, which is what we do with celebrities. After all, we don't, you know, people don't aren't, you know, don't think that uh, admire Bill Cosby because they have any idea who thing who Bill Cosby is. They're admiring a re- the representation of Bill Cosby that he makes for himself. Mm-hmm. Oh. I, I have right. a lot of questions I want to ask you. Yeah. Be clear, it's not, it might have come out the wrong way. I said about how they admired King. Not that King didn't was not worthy of being admired, but Louis had apologized for using his position of power and the position of power. He said, "I is that they admired me." Right. And if that's wrong, then certainly King. What King did was the same thing. You know. But he, King was also. Uh, um, I, I don't think that's plagiarism wrong. after he was passed. He passed away. So he yeah, couldn't defend well, it was himself. Discovered, that's right. It was yeah. discovered that he was a plagiarist. Yeah, yeah. It was known that he was, it wasn't known. Listen. Again, like. But the plagiarism. I, yeah, but also in college. The whole point is, so King was a plagiarist. Like, do we, do yeah. we, do we respect King or think of him as a historical figure because we read his doctoral dissertation? No. No, no it had nothing to do with who he was as a leader. You know, uh, do we respect King because, you know, he had a great marriage? Nobody cared about his marriage. That wasn't the point. The point was that he was this, you know, brave, resourceful, canny, um, inspiring, mo- inspiring moral political on a on a specific issue about, you know, uh, racial equality and uh, and the evils of inequality. Right. So th- for that, you admire him, mm-hmm. but you don't then have to take that and roll it over into, you know, this I into idol worship. It, it, when you idol worship, you are always almost always inevitably disappointed. I mean, I think it's weird in the case of somebody like Louis C.K., whose comedy was about is about his own deep personal <laughs> moral failings. That is and and how he tr- struggles with them as he tries to kind of get through life. That it's not like Bill Cosby presenting himself as America's favorite dad and then drugging women and having sex with them. So he, it's perfectly fitting with the, with the character that he portrayed or was that this is what he did did in hotel rooms, you know? Uh, And by the way, we had, we had one of the women from the New York times here, Milena Rizik. And I asked her about the story and it was pretty clear from talking to her that she went into that story as a champion of a cause, not as looking to, uh, disc- get, uh, uncover all the relevant information about what happened in the hotel room. Mm-hmm. For instance, she says that Louis tried, I'm using the, his word, Louis said, hey, you want to see my dick? And they laughed. And then he proceeded to take off his clothes. So I said, well, did is it possible that he uh, interpreted the laugh as a consent? You know, it's two in the morning, they're hanging out, they're high and drunk. 
Mm-hmm. She says, he did not consent. I say, but is it possible? She says, he did not consent. They did not consent. Right. So, okay. So then he begins to take off his clothes and they begin to laugh and scream. Mm-hmm. I said, did they ever say to stop? You mean, did they ever stop not consenting? This is the answer. I said, right. no, I mean, like, was there some misunderstanding? I mean, this is, but there's two of them. They're not necessarily scared. He's taking off his shirt. They're laughing and screaming. I said, I, if I was filming the movie, I wouldn't quite know how to film that. He hasn't done anything dirty yet. Right. Were they scared? So she started telling me, well, there's this friend and uh, friend and freeze responses, yeah. which is like, a, and I said, okay, did they tell you that was why they did? Mm-hmm. She just overlaying her own like junk right. science explanation. So how long did it go on? She said, for minutes. I said, well, minutes is a long time to be screaming. I said, you know, I, I'm perfectly willing to think that Louis is the worst guy in the world. Mm-hmm. But I want to hear come out of the girl, the lady's mouths, not your overlay on it. It was very disturbing right. what well, happened look, to him. Look, I mean, uh, you know, uh, he's the one who put out the statement that said he's ashamed of himself largely because they admired him. And I think that's a, there's a useful thing in that statement because don't admire people <laughs> whose work you enjoy. They haven't earned your admiration except as performers and don't admire them. You know, don't, if you admire somebody in my experience, often my experience, if you admire somebody, the last thing you want to do is meet them. That's so funny. Yeah. It's so true. They'll Whenever just, I go see a band or something, the hell out of you. Yeah. there's all yeah. these artists that come out of Israel and, and I get like friends turn me on to them on their CDs. And then I, go, I used to go to see their concert, but prior to Queens college, I watch them do one show and I'm mm. so nauseous from them. And I can never listen to their music again. It's just that had nothing to do with it. I have a question. Yeah. You said in an interview. I mean, I've known writers. My, my parents were writers. I knew all these famous writers as a kid. And let me tell you, they these are people that, you know, and they they were, you know, arguably marginally worse than most people. Yeah. Marginally to more worse than most people. Vain, selfish, narcissistic, yeah. unpleasant. Gifted. and But witty, clever, you know, fantastically interesting, Uh but not admirable. They were not personally admirable. That's the problem. It's like, you know, the guy who sells you a newspaper on the subway platform who is sitting there 14 hours a day in the cold to make a living for his family working seven days a week. Chances are he is a vastly more admirable person than every famous person in the world, you sure. know? I, I mean, I that's that's who you, you know, but we don't look at it that way because we are celebrity obsessed and we, and people do worship. I, so, I have this, I have this uh, thing I'll, where I have friends who are like obsessed with the royal family, you know, because it's this whole thing about princes and princesses and palaces and whatever. And I'm like, why on earth, what is, what on earth is interesting a, interesting, but B, admirable, worth <clears throat> being upset about what goes on in the lives of these completely undistinguished, distinguished solely by the accident of their birth yeah. in the late 20th century. They have no power. They have no authority. They have nothing. They're just sort of these objects representing an English past. And people can't help themselves. And so every so we have this now explosion, which is all these people saying, I admired him and he he let me down. Louis C.K., he I admired him, he let me down. Dustin Hoffman admired him, let me down. Don't admire what do you admire him for? So the worst thing well, Noam could have done was to have you here today. 
No. Wait, 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 wait. Listen, further, just to be clear about Louis, further, he was not he was not even a celebrity then. You know, I, we we knew him in, in this is two thousand five yeah. or something. If we, if we put his name on the board outside, right. nobody took a second look. I at knew him. he was. I mean, people who knew comedy knew no, knew yeah, that he so, was the so, greatest yeah. comic of his generation. But uh, not fair then. Enough. Not in 2000. Well, he, he, did, he, but, he wrote but, but, for yeah, Chris I, Rock, but, but he wrote you know, for Chris Rock, so, and, but, but he, he wasn't I, famous I, as a person. I, perform, I remember performing in the back of a diner with him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, he was he was he was he was admired, but everybody knew he was a, ta- a real talent. Right. But yeah. I think he thought well, he was. So I, I was sort of, I, as yeah. I say, I was sort of in comedy circle by marriage. I was sort of in comedy circles, and I knew. Did you admire I me? I knew who he was. Well, you, you're an early I adapter. You deeply. Okay. Well, I have I have two questions. One, he said, don't uh, you know? A lot of people make a mistake of admiring somebody for their talent. Uh, Bill Cosby, for example, you know, mm-hmm. you said in an interview, if it wasn't for him, there will be no Barack Obama. Um, I believe that. Yeah. So, so you should be. So he deserves some kind of admiration <laughs> behind the scene of comedy. Oh, I'm not saying he's not an important cultural figure. He was a, in terms of how a pop culture figure affects the country that he lives in. Cosby is arguably, time, I mean, arguably, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, Trump, the weird thing is that Trump is the person who affected it personally himself for himself. That mm-hmm. is Trump became a big TV star <laughs> and parlayed that into the presidency. Cosby was different. Cosby made, you know, uh, spent 10 years on television presenting an image of a wholesome, serious, respectable, admirable, upper middle class leader of the community, African-American male. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very hard to imagine Barack Obama without him. Now, maybe it would have been somebody else. Maybe there would have been a different, the the country wanted that. And he filled the role, so it could have been somebody else. You know, Tracy Morgan. could have been so, Bernie uh, Mac. I don't know, it, you know, or Bernie something Mac. like that. But Cosby was that person. It turns out he was a uniquely horrible person to be so, filling that role. Having said that, Cosby is, you know, maybe the greatest, one of the five greatest so stand-ups who ever. His crimes he did affect the society in a big regard but the crimes have nothing to do with this that's kind of like columbus christopher columbus and all the <laughs> stuff uh, yeah, that we I, talked I, about okay fair <laughs> enough but i'm just saying like you know if you think about it the cosby to forget you know his role on tv and barack obama i mean he was also like as i say one of the four or five greatest stand-ups who ever lived yeah you know he he was a he you know he inv- he invented or helped invent this whole observational comedy movement like he was an enormously big figure He's just obviously just an awful, horrible, crazy, evil person. Yeah, there's an evil, there's an evilness to Cosby and Weinstein. I actually don't think there's an evilness to Louis, and I think that's. Well, there, I don't know, think I, I think it would be crazy to connect the two. Yeah, but they are, but they are connected, you know. Well, they're connected, but I'm saying it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Weinstein and Cosby assaulted women. Well, Mike Tyson right? apparently raped. So I don't. I'm not well, Mike he really Tyson. Did. Well, he's he did. on Broadway. He celebrated on Broadway. Well, I mean, he went to. He did go to prison. Uh, so for rape. I'm just saying he was. <laughs> that changes, he was it? No, but so. But I'm saying like you know, Luis. Whatever you can say about him, yeah. and you know, all these things that have happened to him, wasn't arrested. Yeah. <laughs> None of these things rise. There was a whole. There was a whole Talmudic question about whether or not, in the course of the thing in the hotel room, he had touched any of the women if he had touched them or blocked their path which is what the first uh unnamed story about him and jezebel had said that 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 they wanted to leave and that he had somehow prevented their see how great exit, minds work alike right go ahead 
So that is leave. that detail is not in the that detail no, I, is we, we not have in the New York Times story. We asked her. Yeah, it didn't happen. Right. So they didn't that see fit to put been, that. Right. No, but that would have been, you know, assault or something like that. So he is guilty of behaving like a, like a you know normal like a gross like somebody gross no. and doing incredibly gross things. And I can understand, by the way, why, you know, if you're in business with him, if you're a network or something like that. You're like, I better back off him because like people aren't going to feel people are going to be feeling and I don't want to, you know, um, the ratings will go down. I got that. two questions. for yeah. you. First of all, shouldn't the, the New York Times reporter, knowing that this had been the rumor and that this was the most important part of the rumor, the, the, the part of the rumor which pointed to real criminality mm -hmm. that she found out through her research that it's not the way it happened. Wouldn't a fair minded reporter have written that? Probably. Yeah. I'm I mean, sure I, I, that's stunning. I, yeah. But. Now, here's my yeah. other question. What, what is it, because this really gets, what is it, I mean, when the Constitution was written, it was really the government that you had to fear in terms of meeting out justice, uh, uh, controlling your right to speak, all the things. The government is not at all the most threatening thing now. We're not, as a business, I'm worried about the, you know, the big social media, political correct behemoth that we're all mm -hmm. dealing with which is what has punished Louis. I don't think anybody cared if HBO still streamed Louis C.K. or not. They're afraid of the, probably the same people who boycotted on behalf of Bill O'Reilly's accusers. What, what's it called? Uh, uh, what was the name of that group? Anyway. Um, and there's, That's and, the name of the group, and, anyway? And, <laughs> no, I, and, and of course, there is yeah, no name. due process. And I had been complaining about this lack of due process for a long time already. And it's just beginning to come around. I, I was comparing it to the movie Death Wish, where I said, you know, when you watch Death Wish, it's great to see Charlie Bronson kill the murderer, but that's not a system of justice. You know, it's great when Harvey Weinstein gets it because you know he really, really deserves it. Right. What do you think about all this? If we were writing the Constitution today, would we not write it somehow differently? Well, I think do, uh, there are many frightening issues about yeah. the misuse of due process that are, are you know more important than these, and like free like uh, you know these these uh, campus tribunals that are you know, destroying these young men's lives when they have these ambiguous sexual encounters with young women who then decide after the fact that they were, that they were raped or they were molested in some fashion. And then the, the male literally has no recourse The just the system, you know, is designed to find him guilty and to destroy his life. And there's now a lot of reversals of this all over the place. There have been sort of 59 or 60 cases, uh, in which courts have ruled against the universities or the colleges that have meted out this incredibly unfair justice. So I think that's a very serious issue. Uh, in the case of, again, if we go to Louis, is the, the Louis C.K. is the case. So this story is rumored to come out for months. Finally, it comes out so that everybody in the business who is in the business um, has already come up with some kind of a crisis management plan. It seems to me, it's mm -hmm. like, I mean, I knew three weeks. Everybody was saying three weeks before Louis C.K. is the next guy. Yeah, He's we the knew, next we'd, guy, we'd right? Heard that they were coming. Okay, out. so if you're at uh, what was his network, FX? F if you're FX. at FX, so you're like having meetings. Right. What do we do when the story comes out? What do we do if the story comes out? What are what are our choices? And they have enough meetings of this, and they decide, okay, well. It's better just to cut bait. We just cut bait because 
we don't know where this is going. We don't know what the story is. You know, we gotta, you know, we just gotta, we just gotta wipe our, we gotta wash our hands clean of this. For all we know, someone will come out of the woodwork and it will be assault and he'll go to jail and, you know, somebody will sue us for something, you know. So, so he, this comes down and in an hour, you know, his entire career is in flames, right? Although not entirely in flames because, you know, uh, Pamela Adlon's show that he created is still on the air. Tig Notaro's show that he was uh, materially involved with is they, still they on the air. Him, I think, but anyway, yeah. no, but I, but I mean, they cut. But I mean, I, uh, from what I understand, it's not so easy to cut. Like he's contractually, he's a creator and an executive producer. You can't, you, know, you can't wish him away. He's got contractual rights. Anyway, and there's, my and point there's is, some vestiges of checks coming in uh, career, right. but his career is, you know, and and it probably have a future but right now right right so so is that a due process issue i don't think it's a due process issue if he had uh that is just a kind of this is the business we have chosen like he's in show business he's he's made a sitcom about himself with his own name you know that put his put that network on the map but they have to do what's best for them and their shareholders and their stockholders and it's not as though he said, you better not do this because it's not fair. He didn't say, this is, uh, you know, we're, you're railroading me. This is not fair. He said, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I should, uh, you know, I need to work on myself. Blah, blah, blah. So it's not like, I mean, who's going to defend him if he's not going to defend himself? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, you know, it's like there's no defense for him. So I don't think that's a. That's a due process issue. I am with you in that uh, in other realms like the social media, this the existence of these mobs that develop over nothing. And then it's they're like, you know, be they're like, uh, do you remember there was a movie on when we were kids called The Naked Jungle, which was about these army ants in South America. They would just sort of show up and then they would decimate your plantation. Or, you know, swarm of bees comes down. It's like all of a sudden somebody says one thing and then the swarm of bees comes down and can really, you know, ruin your life and destroy your life. Now, I assume that this porn star that everybody was talking about, August, whatever her name is, didn't kill herself. A Twitter mob descended on her because she warned, she said, hey, I was going to do a scene with a guy. You should know he's HIV positive, you know, if if they set you up with him because they didn't tell me beforehand. Uh. And then all these people came down to her and said, you're a homophobe and that's terrible and it's horrible. And then 24 hours later, she commits suicide, 23 years old. Now, I assume that a porn star is maybe more trouble than other people. This wasn't the only <laughs> trigger and that, you know, but, but nonetheless, obviously, you know, it was something that sort of pushed her over the edge. I mean, yeah. we, and we, we watched this and real, this happened three weeks ago or something where something happened on social media and somebody killed herself. We have these bully, we have these social media bullying stories with these kids yeah. who, you know, people start saying the messages like you should just die or, you know, your Instagram sucks and you should leave school and go bury yourself in a hole or something like that. And then they go off and kill themselves. They can't blame. There's something uniquely horrible about this. You know, I, I don't, it's new. It's a new thing, you know, and I, 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 God only knows how we're going to establish again. You have, I have like teenagers. I have a teenager and someone's about to be a teenager 
And, you know, I'm scared to death of this phenomenon because I've seen it in my own social media life where, I mean, I had this thing happen a couple of years ago where John Legend, the singer, uh, in the middle of the 2014 Israeli war with Gaza. So you may remember John Kerry's secretary of state. He was like doing shuttle diplomacy between the Palestinians, the Israelis. And he was like having a nervous breakdown. He kept mouthing off and then saying the Israelis were right. And then saying they were wrong, going somewhere else. And he was just embarrassing himself. And a lot of us were making fun of him. <laughs> and John Legend said something like, you know, I am sick and tired of people, you know, condemning my secretary of state, who's a wonderful man and doing a wonderful job or something like that. And then I saw this. I don't follow John Legend. It somehow came into my Twitter feed and I responded by saying, shut up and sing. <laughs> that was all I said. Okay. And in an hour, in an hour, I gotten 1500 messages saying, you racist. What are you telling him to tap dance? What, why don't oh, wow. you serve him some watermelon? Wow. Okay. Now the truth is I thought John Legend was just some, you know, idiot singer whom I didn't like. I didn't yeah. know that he'd gone to the university of Pennsylvania and that he was sort of like a literate, well-read guy. Yeah, I just thought he was just a, he was just sort of mouthing off like some, you know, you know, some, some boy band singer yeah. who never done, done anything. So I was, I was sort of embarrassed. I it, literally, I did it in three seconds. I mean, it was a three second. It had nothing to do with anything. This is what Ann, this is, this is the same excuse Ann Coulter uses, by the way, but go ahead. What? <laughs> no, it's like, this is, it's funny. Because no, like, I, I, uh, you and know, I, I delete it. I, I apologize for it. <laughs> I delete it. And then it kept coming. Any of them anti-Semitic? It kept. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> that wasn't the big thing. It really was. This. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. I, was, <laughs> yeah, I didn't no, know you. But, no, but then, but then, you know, and then I did this thing where it's like, okay, well, the hell with this and i deleted my account and then i wasn't there like tennessee Coast. but then a whole then a whole bunch of people were like yay he deleted his we got him we got him you know there was like this party and then i was like well i better reactivate my account because i don't want like i'm not i'm not gonna get dri-. but the whole thing was almost six hours long but you know i'm like a i'm like a man in my 50s and i did it doesn't i didn't mean anything by it and no one's gonna destroy my life over this yeah. And it it passed. But if I were 15, yeah. now it's not going to happen to a 15-year-old in the same way. But if I were 15, what what possible uh what possible protections would I have from the feeling of absolute it's 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 an awful feeling as it happening. Yeah. I would have no protections from the dis- self-destruction that I would feel was you know was <laughs> well, I had I had, I had a, 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 a I I just I heard was Sora uh, what's his last name Sora Bamari Yeah I heard yeah. him say on your show and it, it 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 was the same kind of thing that I've been saying he talked about we need a spirit of due process Do you remember when he said that mm-hmm. on your show and I really feel that way I think there's a lot of false outrage I think if if somebody took a stand if HBO said look we're not going to fire him it would it would it would push things in the other direction the earth would not have opened up and swallowed them. I don't, I don't think the ratings, you know, we'll let the viewers decide you want to see it, watch it. You right. don't, you don't, I, I think it's, they're kowtowing there to used a mob. To be, there used to be a spirit of journalistic due process in this sense. And I say this as somebody who, you know, I worked at three newspapers. I, I was an editor, a top editor at a tap. I was a top editor of the New York post, which is obviously not exactly the most restrictive and, you know, stodgy paper in the universe when it comes to revealing you know malfeasance and celebrity misbehavior 
But there were, until really a lot of these stories, there were very specific sets of rules that governed when you reported on individual personal misbehavior. Like there had to be an arrest. There had to be a filed lawsuit was not sufficient because anyone can file a lawsuit. There would have to have been some legal action, like the lawsuit had been heard or there had been a motion to dismiss that had been dismissed so that the case could go forward. That there either the involvement of the of the formal legal system or a tort, you know, a, 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 a accusation of a tort where somebody, you know, sues somebody else for for damages or, you know, for something like that in a civil suit or something like that. That was what triggered it being fair to write something about somebody or and in this case, including, you know, the Weinstein case is a sort of iffy one or it's, it's because the Weinstein case, there was a case in 2015 where he had, you know, where this woman had gone to the cops and had been wired. And then for reasons having to do with bureaucratic fights, the Manhattan D.A., didn't take the case for it because they didn't like the questions that she had asked Weinstein when she was, when she had the wire on her. Right. So, but at least in the Weinstein case, there was, there had been legal action and then there had been all these non-disclosure agreements that he had signed that, you know, and P, uh, one, at least one person violated a non-disclosure agreement, Rose McGowan to say that she had been raped and that she had been paid off. Mm-hmm. But yeah. in Louis, but in, but in Louis CK's case, there is no allegation of criminal That's my point. wrongdoing yeah. or or he wasn't sued. Like there's no. So that was the due process. The due process was there had to be the involvement of a third party authority yeah. to make this because anyone can accuse anyone of anything. That's right. And by the way, not just that, but they could accuse him of it and he could say, I did it. And I guess that would be a story. But what what story like what what? And the only question here is the notion is that the harm that's done is to the self-esteem of these women and to their own sense of how they wanted to pursue their own careers in the Weinstein case. Right now, I have a story. Want to hear a story? I'll tell you a story. So I was 17 years old. I went to the Williamstown (laughs) Theater Festival as an apprentice in 1978. And, uh... This was just before AIDS, and it was a very sybaritic atmosphere. I was the youngest kid there. There were orgies almost every night in various places, and I had a couple of men pursue me, and I, which made me very uncomfortable. And at the end of the 10 weeks of my apprenticeship, I decided I wasn't going to go into the theater. I was like, yeah, I'm not going to. This world is gross. I don't like it, and I don't want to do it. I want to be in it. Now, uh, is that a story? Like my my decision to say I don't like this. This is not this is not for me. Now there are a whole bunch of people who liked it a lot, uh-huh. including other apprentices my age who sort of enjoyed the hedonism and wanted in on the sybaritic behavior and were perfectly happy to delve into these pleasures, but I was more straight-laced and you know tight ass yeah. and I didn't want it. <laughs> it wasn't you know, for you. Well. wasn't for me. <laughs> Morty. Is that a story? No. <laughs> so, okay. But right now it's 1978. I was seven. I wasn't 18 yet. I was 17. And, and, uh, you know, one guy who w- was actively pursuing me is now dead. So I could name him, but wouldn't be, I'm not no, going man. to. Uh, <laughs> and another guy who pursued me is pretty well known and is still an active performer. And I'm not going to name him either. Um, 
But so the rules have changed where the fact that I didn't go into the theater because I was disillusioned by this 10 weeks uh, of time is some now deemed to be a story. Like, let me, let me ask how, what wonderful things might I have done as an actor, yeah, right. except that these terrible people took it away from me. But listen, I want to miss if yeah. I found out, I said, if I found out that my bartender was guilty of exactly the same things, exactly the same things that I know Louis CK did the, the worst spin on what Louis did. And I, 17 years ago, and I find out that this bartender has done that. Would anybody think I should fire him? Of course not. Would anybody think I had the right to fire him? That I was fair, that I could conduct an inquiry, that I would know the facts. That's what I'm it would be. It would be ridiculous to go and fire this guy. I don't think anybody. But if he admits he did it, he, did what? If, listen, so, if, yeah. I, if he admits that he, mas- he asked some girl 17 years ago to masturbate in a hotel room, I'm going to fire. him. I'm on your side. I, I'm, I'm, just I'm supposed to. Think, the other I way. wish I could fire him. He deserves to be fired. He should never work again. I don't see it. I don't. I think if Netflix or HBO, if any of them had had stood up a little bit, they would have found that the country was perfectly fine. Yeah. But I think the idea a, here is yeah. that these are crimes of the powerful. And because these right. are powerful people, but now you're arguing, blood, But it's blood in the water, and now right. it, it's... But uh, your argument is that he wasn't powerful, which I think is interesting. He was Okay. But I mean, the idea is these are the crimes of the powerful, and the powerful get away with things that your bartender wouldn't. Or also, if your bartender did that, and he was in a room... Like he wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be the case that one of the women was never going to be a bartender because she was so disillusioned by the experience. I, I right. I, I have, I have no, but a, that's, but the, in every one of these cases, there are these now again, Weinstein, you have to separate this out because if Weinstein, you know, makes a pass at a woman and she says no, and then he systematically tries to destroy her career. Yes. That's evil. Like you can see why that's right. That's, the, you know, now, she can't prove it. Now there's the proof that, you know, Mira Sorvino and Ashley Judd's careers, which were mysteriously halted at yeah, some impeded, point. Yeah. I mean, Ashley Judd like started a bunch of literally was the top line star of a bunch of successful like thrillers in the 1990s. And then she kind of vanished. I remember thinking at the time, yeah. whatever happened to Ashley Judd, like she had just made this big hit movie, Double Jeopardy. Well, according to Peter Jackson, Harvey Weinstein was walking around saying, don't hire their She's trouble, difficult. their trouble, yeah. their don't do it, don't do it. And if you have ever hired anybody, that is, that is like gold, that is like a liquid poison. Like someone says to you, ah, you know, you, that person is kind of difficult. You're like, well, I don't need that. I mean, absolutely, my God, absolutely. That's the last thing I need. You know, there are 10,000 other people I can hire for that job. Yeah. All right. We got, well, we got, we got to get through a few other things. Okay. The tax plan. Yeah. You have to go? Okay, go ahead. The tax plan. Yeah. You're for it or against it? I'm for it, marginally. Because? Uh, Because it's a tax cut, and my view is that the government takes too much money, and tax cuts, all all tax cuts do is that they restrict the ability of the government to take more or less money from people and and put it into the government's coffers. Well, I had a few thoughts on it. You tell me what the, first of all, if the tax plan that's passed today were the status quo, Mm -hmm. And the tax plan that we're living under now was the one that were proposed. Wouldn't we see all the exact same arguments about how it's raising taxes on the on the right. poor? I mean, it would be almost worse to go in right. the opposite direction. Okay, so so you understand I, I, the question, right? Yeah. So I was working on a on a I was working on something about this today, which is to say, this is what happens: Republicans cut taxes, 
And Democrats increase government programs and government spending. This is the main since the end of the Cold War, when there was a real difference in the parties about the Soviet Union, how to confront the communist world or something like that. This is the divide between Republicans and Democrats. This Republicans tend to come into office and cut taxes. Uh, Ronald Reagan did. George W. Bush did. Now Trump has. And liberals come into office looking to uh, empower government and increase the number of programs the government does. And in order to do that, they usually figure out ways to raise taxes. So that's Clinton and Obama. George H.W. Bush was a little different because he agreed to raise taxes in order to cut spending, which was a and lost his everywhere I'm talking about now got two terms and George W. Bush got one H.W. Bush got one. So it shows you how successful it is yeah. <laughs> to raise taxes or to in order to you know limit uh, government spending. OK, so also because he had pledged no right, new taxes. So yeah. Republicans say if you raise taxes, you are going to destroy our economy. And Democrats say if you cut taxes, you are going to empower the wealthy, starve the poor, kill children and ruin <laughs> our ruin our society. And neither is ever true. You know, yeah. uh, and and this. And so one of the things that Trump has done, because his own his own general rhetoric is so unhinged and crazy and out there is that the way people have been talking about this tax bill over the last three weeks, I mean, is insane. Nancy Pelosi, the head Democrat in the house said it's the worst bill in American history. <laughs> We're talking about the fugitive slave act, you know, which allowed people, which, you know, which, which empowered anyone to capture a runaway slave and return them to the slave, to the slaver, you know, the internment of the Japanese, the prohibition, I mean, you can name, Ob I think Obamacare would be up there, but you know, you can, yeah. I'm just saying there are 50,000 pieces of legislation that are worse than a relatively conventional Republican tax cut. Absolutely. And, and, um, well, a few observations on it. First of all, if it works, since we're, we unemployment is pretty low now, mm -hmm. wouldn't one of the major benefits be an increase in wages. I'm already seeing, you know, they talk about big corporations a lot and I don't, I don't understand that world, but as a small businessman, yeah. I'm already seeing upward pressure on wages. Right. Well, the big interesting story is right. That this recovery, the recovery and the incredibly low unemployment rate have been sort of, this is a two or three year story. And it's weird that that upward pressure hasn't already happened. We're at, we're at a number of employment that under other circumstances would have been considered full employment, which can, means can I stop that, you there. Right, okay. I think, I think full employment is a little bit of a myth, like right. peak oil. Yeah. There's a lot of employment right. in shale oil mm -hmm. as it yeah. were. Grandma comes in to does the books. The kid finally off the couches. I mean, I right. don't know how big that reserve is. Yeah. I think it's sizable. There's a right. lot of underutilized employment. No, employment. clearly. Cause there are these two different unemployment measures of unemployment. Yeah. And one of them, indicates a significant amount of underemployment, but according to, you know, but basically, and then, then you need immigrants. Right. So After what's, that you need immigrants. Right. So what's interesting again about what's going on with this tax cut is what Trump couldn't argue and what the Republicans really couldn't argue was the emergency, which is what Ronald Reagan had in 1981. Like we are in such deep trouble, right? We got to do something radical. We got to cut these taxes in order to send money back, you know, in order to do something right. So 
Trump's line is things are fantastic. The stock market's gone up 25%. Unemployment is down. Businesses are coming home, all of this. So he didn't have the ordinary, oh my God, this is a crisis. We better do this. So what he had was the Republicans knew they had to do something. They'd been in power for a year. They have the control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, and they didn't get the repeal of Obamacare. And they bumbled around and they didn't get the wall and they didn't get the travel ban right. And they nothing was going right. And it was like, if they couldn't do this, which is just Republican 101, you cut taxes. If you're a Republican, you're for cutting taxes. Then they were going to reap. Not only were Democrats going to hate them, but everybody who votes Republican was going to say, you are useless. You think I'm going to go out and give you money? Into, you think I'm going to go to vote for you in 2018? You guys that. are schlep slob losers. And by the way, Republicans are going to get killed in 2018 yeah. uh, regardless. But but they had to do something. So he had the, my God, we got to do something. Or we're, And the, the weird thing about this bill is, you know, it's incredibly stimulative. Like there's this huge corporate tax cut and pass through tax cut all of it. So, so that means that, you know, businesses are going to pay, I don't know, 30% less in taxes next year. And they pay this year. It's a kind of weird time to do a big stimulus because the economy is growing at a respectable rate and unemployment is relatively low. And, you know, the danger here is that it's going to overheat. The danger is it'll work too well and you'll get an explosion of inflation because 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 um you know there will be this the upward pressure for jobs you'll get like you wouldn't even believe you know right. if all these companies as they claim today are going to bring jobs home and start investing in all of this so where are they going to find the workforce well as i said i think i think a lot more is there than they yeah. realize and then ironically immigrants, right? Well, we're, yeah. all of a sudden we're going to need immigrants and hopefully in an right. orderly process. But that's, that's the other irony of this is if we're, again, if we're nearing, you know, if we have, if we have low unemployment and we have an economic boom and we need workers, the other. And automation, by the right, way. And the other part of the Trump story is that he, you know, harnessed anti-immigration sentiment I'm 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 very liberal on immigration, but I'll just say, you know, we harnessed all sorts of anti-immigration sentiment. What are they going to do then? People are going to come to him and say, my God, like, I, I don't have enough. I don't have a, You know, I'm, I'm building your factory. I don't have enough workers. Let me bring some workers in. And he's like, well, I got to build my wall. They're like, don't build your wall. I mean, what's going to happen then? It's sort of an interesting. Did you hear the Andrew problem. Sullivan podcast he did recently on National no. Review? He talks about immigration and it, it dovetails with something Peter Beinart has said about immigration. And it's something that I've always worried about, which is the the uh, the social fabric seems to be coming apart. Is that, that, that doesn't worry you. I, I, oh, it worries me terribly. And, and immigration seems to exacerbate that. And let me add, as an employer, yeah. I have a lot of immigrants working for me. Mm-hmm. They're fantastic. Like you, mm-hmm. you, you can't even imagine how at at half at twice the wage they'd be better than the homegrown employees. Right. But they are the most unpatriotic bunch you have ever seen. Uh-huh. And it's not all of them. Not all of them. Not yeah. all. Not them. All but, them. But, but but you know right. what I'm referring to. Yeah. yeah, yeah like uh-huh. compared to my father's generation of yeah. immigrants who were raising a flag every morning. Yeah. And you wonder how how does this all come together as a country? 
when you really have people just coming over here and they're still text messaging, they're not leaving the old country right. behind, you know, and kissing sure. the ground. Sure. Uh, I'm very worried about the Why are you liberal despite that? No, I'm very worried about the social fabric. I think that they're responding to the same sets of uh, incentives and ideas that Americans are responding to and talking about how, you know, eh, we should, you know, big, big liberals are talking about how socialism is better than capitalism. And, you know, I wouldn't exactly say that there's an explosion of fervid patriotic sentiment among native born Americans right. all over well, we the place. We have no choice about the native born. But, yeah, but I'm really... saying, you understand what I'm yeah. saying? I'm saying that, that they're. At a time in which the president of the United States, the guy who was now president of the United States, spent two years talking about how the country sucked and everything was terrible and every leader has been terrible and the last 20 years have been terrible and everyone is getting screwed and everything is awful. It's a little, you know, if you're, it's, you know, so that was one of his messages, you yeah. know. Um, but I'm afraid they're coming okay. from countries where yeah. they've been raised on this always. It's uh -huh. not, it's not. Right. Been, like in Mexico, they've been marinated in 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 an, a kind of an American Look, I, thing. I, I, listen, the one of the reasons that we have a problem, a cultural problem with immigration on the right, is it is unquestionably the case that this notion that we if people come here, they should learn English, they should, which they do actually. I mean, it's you wouldn't come here and then not learn. It's crazy, but they, they learn English. And you get educated in the precepts and ideas that made America great. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it was the doctrine, sort of liberal doctrine for 30, 40 years that you didn't have to do that, that you should let Spanish-speaking people come here and their children should be educated in Spanish in schools and that they should, you know, and that, and that uh, instead of having a big monoculture, a big melting pot American culture, everybody should go off into their own silos and... You should be a Mexican and you should be a Muslim and you should be, you know, so that whereas Jews of, you know, Jews and Italian, Irish and, you know, all the immigrants of the last century had no choice. Like they became Americans or they were basically garbage on the sidewalk. There was no safety net for them. There was no I mean, there were safety nets because like Jews had communal organizations to help poor Jews. But I mean, they had no choice. It was sink or swim. They came to a country that was not theirs. And if they didn't learn to play by the rules and do, do it the way that we did it, they were, their lives were going to be a misery and they were going to end up going home as a lot of people did. And now we're in this kind of mid midway station where you're not, what's so great about America anyway? <laughs> you know, what's That's so great? Right. You know, Columbus was evil and and, you know, the country was built on the myth of, you know, the killing Indians and 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 slavery and and all of that. And then we have this these bad, these ridiculous cultural battles between Trump and kneeling football players over. That's the least of our problems is, you know, whether or not you should, you know, whether or not you should stand for the national anthem. Yeah. Like, well, do people know? What? Do people know what the Bill of Rights is? Do they know what the Declaration? Of, I don't care whether they stand for the national anthem. Screw the national anthem. Like, do they? Do they know? Do they know that we have a executive, judicial, and legislative branch of the government? That's yeah. what they're supposed to know. But I think the I, I, for the immigration, just quickly, you know, the immigrants these days, we don't have a chance to become Americans like before. You know, here you always looked at 
that you are an immigrant, you're always going to be an immigrant, and you're not part of the system, no matter what you do, no, no. no matter what. It's- you think you think it you think it was you think it was any better? You know, like this is this is one of the things that cracks me up is that people are now you know the joke about white you know like you it's your white privilege confess to your white privilege all of this and I'm like. My grandmother came here. She was 17. She came on a boat in 1920. She spoke with a thick Yiddish accent all her life. The idea that she would be considered as white as Mrs. Rockefeller mm-hmm. would have been surreal to her. <laughs> yeah. She she wasn't white. She was a Jew. But she became an American, but she was also a Jew. And and you know this this notion that there's an Amer- that you that you as an immigrant are excluded from some America. I don't think that's right. I mean, I, I'll give you the examples. Irish, you, you know, there used to be signs that said, you know, Irish need not apply Same for jobs. Italians. Yeah. Italians and Irish need not apply. We still I have mean, these was, signs. Yeah. They just written Arabic. In <laughs> <laughs> Arabic delis. Right. Listen, I, I've said, I, I think that uh, we, we went from the melting pot society, which we all, to the mosaic. And I don't know that mosaics work. Right. Well, mosaics are broken. Have they? They don't work in Canada. It doesn't work. No, it it shouldn't. And 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 the funny part is, I'm I mean, I'm very sad to hear you say this. I'm sure I'm. You know, I have no reason to contest your 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 experience. But I mean, the the problem I think has been that 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 oddly enough, there's been too great an accommodation to the idea that. You don't have to be an American That's right. uh-huh. more than that. It's exactly. like you, you're not an American and you'll never be an American. Exactly. You may be the um, odd man out because you want to be more. Yeah. Amer- you're not, it's like, what are you doing? You're an Arab. You know, yeah. stay Arabic. Exactly. No, I get it from both sides. Yeah. You yeah. know, but I, I know I feel and, Ameri- and let me tell I you, am an American. I'm going to tell you the other bad thing about all these immigrants coming in. They're from cultures that don't like Israel. And over time, I believe, I worry it's going to turn American policy away from Israel. I, I, don't no, know I'm, I don't know if I'm allowed happen. to think that way without well, being accused of some well, sort of dual can, loyalty, but well, I, I do worry about that. Well, I, I mean, I, I, you know, right now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more worried about native-born Americans turning, toward, yeah. turning away from Israel, um, and you know, the fact that the Democratic Party seems to be turning, you know, I mean, literally polls, it's, polls it's, show it's, they've turned, yeah. but, but sure that sure that's an issue, and I don't see that that's a totally fair voting, you know, like uh, issue of concern. I think there's a case to be made on Israel and I make the case and all this that aside from whatever tribal loyalties I have to the nation state well, of that's my, my own next people, question for you. But. No, but if I try tribal, which I, which I confess and I don't see any reason why I shouldn't feel my sister lives there. I have four nieces and I, nephews I, who live yeah. there and, and great nephews and all this. So, um, but you know, the reason that America has this close connection to, to, to Israel is it's the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the, freest country in the middle east i don't think those are the reasons no and i think Uh, there is a deep there is a deep connection between the notion of america as a chosen that america is a land that has this is deep in the american side that god chose america to be a special place uh, and that israel is also a place that god chose that that these that these ideas unconsciously resonate with a lot of people who are not Jews in the United States. Yeah, I think I think the problem, not that a lot of Middle Eastern hates Israel, they do, but uh, I think the reason because they feel unfair 
the the treatment from the United States and all the power is unfair. Like you can do something and, you know, Israel won't get punished as much as like, say, Palestine. Yeah. I'm not saying that the... But Hatem, just for my point, I'm saying you may be... I, Presuming you're right, and Israel and, and Israel is the is the morally deficient in this argument. I don't think it's good for the United States of America. It's to, not to bring that in, and, but it's not, not because the United States is supposed to be the leader of the world. Listen, you know, fair. Like I said many times, the, the, the Voting Rights Act for like what 40, 50 years after segregation still presumed that if you're a white Southerner, <laughs> but we know you're probably still racist. You're a white Southerner, yeah. So we know that these attitudes have a very long half life. See, but I also but, but I, we, we suspend I, that. Can you I know? move? Can I ask yeah. you a question? So sure. I, I, you know, there is this potentially earth-shaking thing going on in the Middle East in yeah. relation to Israel. While we talk about whether or not Trump should have uh, yeah. named uh, Jerusalem, so in your home country, right, is Egypt. So, Egypt. Uh, so Al Sisi has become effectively and quietly an ally of Israel against Hamas and Gaza, right? Mm-hmm. And there is a total Mubarak was and always Mubarak very, before Mubarak that. was, but Mubarak was always very careful to keep things very chilly with yeah. Israel, right? Yeah. Uh, allowing demonstrations in the streets against, you know, during the Intifada, all of this to keep it chilly and to keep sort of a anti-Semitic tone to a lot of the culture and all of this, so that he could play both sides of the street. Yeah, but so Sisi, there's not that much of the chilliness yeah. i mean and now in saudi arabia you have the rise of mohammed bin salman who is potentially the most earth-shaking figure of the 21st century if he survives if, and he, lasts. A, if he isn't killed or yeah. his plane doesn't seriously crash until... right but i mean <laughs> here's this guy he is radically um changing saudi arabia mm-hmm. he is you know all this liberalization he has arrested all the all these people in the old guard he has gone at Iran. He has gone at Hezbollah. He has, you know, sought to essentially depose the leader of Lebanon for being too friendly to Iran. Mm-hmm. And he clearly wants, and he has this weird, he he brought in Mahmoud Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, and said, you're going to accept this. We're going to cut you off unless you accept this peace deal mm-hmm. from the Israelis, which is, the most right-wing peace deal that Israel ever offered the Palestinians. Absolutely. There were, there were way left-wing, way more yeah. left-wing ones. Absolutely. Okay, so this is crazy. If I had said to you guys 20 years ago that Saudi Arabia would be the most potent liberalizing force in the Middle East, you would have, you would have locked me up and thrown me in a mental yeah, institution. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't would... believe this is happening. Now, I say I, I so can't believe it's happening. That I kind of can't believe that it's going well, to last. Well, well this is no exactly, permanent allies. This is interest. exactly my point. You explain it. Right. If you guys leave us, do what we got to do, the Middle East will be a better place. But the U.S. Um, foreign policy, I think it's horrible, especially Obama's time, um, playing both sides and all that. It delayed that. You know, Sisi, mm-hmm. after four years, you know, the first two fighting with the U.S., trying to make peace and know that Hamas is the problem, mm-hmm. trying and, and the U.S. is the one that stopped him from, mm-hmm. uh, you know, fighting Hamas and let him in and all that. If you let us, you know, Egypt, the people now, they want peace. Mm-hmm. So if we let Israel and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and all that just deal with it, the way you deal with it, right. they, will get, they will get it done. 
You know, we've been fighting ISIS before, you know, but Taliban before. What's fascinating, you mentioned this about Obama. Nobody knows this about Obama, that that it wasn't just Israelis who disliked Obama by the end of the Obama administration. He had this like ridiculously low approval rating in Israel, like 8% or 7 yeah. something like that. But everybody in the Middle East didn't like Obama because they thought the Saudis thought that he was empowering, I mean, except for Iran, who didn't like him either because they yeah. hate America. But he was empowering Iran and, you know, they were essentially going to find themselves with a nuclear yeah. Iran across the, you know, across the Persian Gulf from them. And what the hell were they going to do? Were they going to have to? And if they have let the Saudi right. deal dealt with it long time ago, right, and not stopping them, right. they would not have that. But problem. this is right. another thing that they ended up all having in common. And and Obama was, you know, hostile, quietly hostile to CC, um, which was crazy. Uh, I mean, I can understand why, you know, in the beginning, who and yeah. all of that. But you know, the guy basically was saying, "I'm I'm back." together with you as a counterweight to bad forces and israel's like great that's great and obama's like and the way i really wait, really think you should wait, wait. be nicer we, we're almost out yeah, of time okay. i have two quick questions that could be answered okay. almost yes you know whatever and then i want to ask you a little bit muller if that's okay, okay. No, sure uh but and and you like these questions true or false if the palestinians wanted a peace deal they could have it and quickly. Oh, they could have had it at any moment, at any time in the last mm -hmm. 40 years. You agree? There's, yes. It, you, and it would have been faster if it's all the, just like now, all the pieces around them force them to do it. In the end, settlements, all whatever yeah. you want to put on the only yes, reason there, the only reason there's no peace deal yes. is because they didn't want a peace deal. The minute yes. that Sadat, Anwar Sadat, the head of Egypt in the late 70s, the, the minute that Sadat said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, it was a foregone conclusion that Israel and Egypt were going to have a peace deal and that the Sinai was going to revert to Sadat, because, to Egypt. Like, all they have to do is do it, and Israel will do it. Isn't it frustrating that people don't understand this about Israel? They, 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 I mean, I believe it swings to the left and right, not because... They don't want peace, but because they they become disillusioned. Th things one, are different. Side. Things are different now because I, I I told Noam before a story. Different way uh, in the Middle East because of the internet because people in the Middle East can get the right information. Before I told him a story, there was there was a prime minister of Egypt and they asked him a question in Arabic and he answered one thing: "We'll never have peace. We'll never yeah. talk." Same question in English, totally different answer. Right. You know, people don't know now. People know. You know what I'm saying? People know the truth. Education. Uh, you can educate yourself online, so you know the truth. You know history. You know a lot so, of things because they're sacrificing these generations. Of we don't want anybody. Well, Palestinians even. are, you know, Palestinians are doing what they can to continue to foment this hostile and angry yeah. culture against Israel. But you know, I, I, you know, it's why you look at it and you say this: the, the, there can never be a change. On the other hand, everybody who runs the place is is going to drop dead at some point in the next five years. Who knows? It looks like you can't imagine somebody better will come along, but who knows? Do you think that Netanyahu wants peace? Yes. You do? Well, you, I think you, he wants Have you spoken to him? You know him a little yeah, bit? Yeah, I know him. I know him. Do I think he wants peace? Yeah, I think he doesn't believe that the, his interlocutors are serious about peace. But he, if they think, were serious, you think would he do. wouldn't want to be the guy to say, I have, you know, I feel secure in saying, I have ended this conflict that has roiled my you know, has roiled my country for 75 years. Of course he would. Everybody wants to go out on a high note. Yeah, I I, 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 I don't know about too. him. 
about not, not, Netanyahu. I, I think he doesn't trust um, the Arabic That's people, what he said. and he will never do. I think there's other leaders as that would. As soon as there's a, there's a Palestinian he, Sadat, he he'll and, trust him. He and Mohammed bin Salman are are dancing together. <laughs> no, they are they are dancing to unchain. No, they good and happily. and with the CC too. But again, like if, but it, like yeah. no, no, Noam said before yeah. in this episode is like the problem with the with the Arabic that you can make peace with say Israel with Mohammed bin Salman with CC. The minute CC or Mohammed bin Salman die, somebody else is going to come, going to cancel everything and well, stuff from the start. That's so you can yeah. start, you can trust the pe- the right. certain leader, but you don't trust the people. Yeah, that's that's his point, and I agree. Right. Muller, mm-hmm. and then we're done. Mm-hmm. Or the embassy, uh, one my, more. My uh, my concern about the whole Mueller thing is is, and I was concerned about this during the Clinton thing is the notion of the cure being worse than the disease, and I don't think that gets enough attention. There are certain violations of law, of a uh, rank uh, disloyalty, treasonous behavior, whatever that that we need to know about a president and get him out. There's a whole nother list of things like sexual harassment or his personal finance or what, that I don't know if it's worth having the, the white house focused on this year in, year out. They, there was the accusation, what's her name? Karen Greenberg, mm-hmm. who said that uh, Clinton was so uh, taken with Monica Lewinsky scandal that he took his eyes off Al Qaeda. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Trump is dealing with uh, what are the, the kimchi missile crisis or whatever it is. Yeah. And, and this guy is all riled up. And we already know he's unhinged. Mm-hmm. Do we really want him to be spacing two, three years of, of investigation into stuff that even if it's not kosher, is it worth, is it the right thing for the nation? We're strapped into this, this, this airplane here, right? right? He's the pilot. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, I think, I think he, uh, you know, he went up to the director of the FBI and said, uh, go easy on a guy who later pled guilty to a crime. So, um, you know, to the extent that he did a kind of weird Michael Corleone, Mm -hmm. you know, laying his hands on your shoulder and saying, you know, are you with me? Are you against me? Do this for me, you know, do this for me and I'll call you Godfather. Okay. So how it, it should take no longer than it, than it takes. The question with the thing about Lewinsky Think about the star investigation was that Lewinsky came about three years into this incredibly complicated investigate real estate investigation of a bad real estate deal that was impossible to sort through. And then out of nowhere comes this other thing. Right. So this is this investigation is relatively limited in scope. It's about did was there did the Russians somehow materially affect the investigation Affect the election in 2016, and was there a conspiracy with the Trump campaign to do so? And I think unless Mueller proves that, and so far, despite the hysteria that you hear, no one is there. I'm pretty anti-Trump, but there is literally no dot that has connected that comes anywhere near Trump, or a dot that connects that says that anybody said do this and go do that. And I'm talking about, I do think that his former campaign manager, Manafort, was some kind of Russian agent of influence, but he got fired. And uh, when he got fired, Trump was like 25 points back in the polls or so, you know, it was like, it was 10 or 11 points. So it's not as though, you know, he got rid of him and then brought other people in who weren't, who, who didn't have business dealings with Russia. So 
I don't know. I mean, I think your I think your idea that investigations of presidents are really uniquely dangerous is is something that we need to consider. And on the other hand, uh, you know, we have a we have a president who won't who who unlike every leader of the last four won't release his tax returns. So we don't know what his personal interests are and how they might be affecting his uh, decisions. And which is why they're supposed to release their tax returns. And, um, and he runs a pretty slee weird, tight, sleazy ship. <laughs> um, that's not enough to throw him out of office. Um, and if, but, but, you know, to accuse them, accuse Mueller of distracting Trump when Trump has this immense capacity to distract himself, you know, why is he fighting with Colin Kaepernick for three weeks for when he could be doing <laughs> when he could be doing something more you know useful with his time? That's what I mean. Like if if they, if they if they do another year of this and then give Trump a clean bill of health, mm-hmm. I think there'll be a big backlash about this, and I think it'll be justified because if he did if he did something truly criminal, or if something truly criminal happened. I think it would be fantastic we start for with, Trump if he got a clean bill of health. Could, I think, could, could the Democrats win the uh, – uh, could the Republicans not not be trounced in the midterms if right around then it, he gets a clean bill of health? No, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think basically, first of all, the out party always gets – you know, we haven't had an election except the one immediately after 9-11, after 9/11 a midterm election in which the out party didn't get trounced. Uh, or the, the the party that's in power didn't get trounced. So A, they're going to get trounced because that's, that's the way structurally goes. how it happens. And these numbers that we're seeing now, what are called the generic ballot, that's when you ask people, are they going to vote for the Republican or the Democrat in the next election with no names? Mm-hmm. These numbers are crazy. We're talking about a Democratic advantage. There was a poll today by CNN of 18, an 18 point Democratic advantage. We've never seen a number like that ever. Like when the Republicans won 63 seats in the House against uh, against Obama, they were like 11. So 18, all the polls this week, 18, 15, 14, like the Republicans are in very bad shape. Mm. Um, and so I don't think and that's structural. And, and also like because Democrats are enthusiastic and Republicans are less enthusiastic. And, you know, uh, we saw that with Roy Moore. And obviously it's a special case, but. Almost every Democrat who voted for Hillary Clinton voted in Alabama in in that special election in Alabama, which is like unprecedented, 93 percent of them and 49 percent of the Republicans who voted for Trump voted in the special election. So you can say that they did it because they were disgusted by the guy. They didn't like him. They didn't want to vote for him, which I believe. But that's an indication of and it's a special circumstance. But that's an indication of, you know, this enthusiasm gap that could really destroy them. All right. Well, we'll see. I, do you think there's going to be something? I, I'm, my do I think that Trump is going to get – Mueller is going to give the Democrats in Congress, re, uh, you know, A reason information for articles of impeachment? No, I really yeah. doubt it. My, 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 listen, I, I know some uh, people who do business in Russia, and I, when we read about it, Everybody's bristling under those sanctions. And it made, always made perfect sense to me that everybody would be closing up to the new possible thing. And it's kind of the legal bribery of our system and, and, mm-hmm. and, and giving money and making contacts and trying to do whatever they can. And uh, certainly it is possible that there was criminality. 
but but show us a crime already right. after what two years of this? Well, it hasn't been two years. It's been eight months. Yeah, it hasn't He's been. Only, no, no, they were, but it was it was investigations prior to Mueller too. No, well, not really. No? I mean, no. So it's really been uh, actually since I mean, there was, May there was, there or was, late May. It's really not been that long. It just feels like we've yeah. been at no, this forever. No, but there was surveillance during the Obama administration of this. Yeah, and, but they can't and, use that. Mueller's got to start fresh. Well, so good. anyway, all I'm saying is like the Mueller investigation started at the end of May. So it's now December. It's not been that long. It just feels it feels like like long, it's been forever. It feels like a long time. Yeah, yeah I, I'm worried about it. I, I, well, anyway. Um, yeah, I think the cure is worse than the disease. That's that's my only worry. And I hope that, especially with a guy like Trump, who's so unhinged, to use the word for the third time, there's no <laughs> yeah. better word for it. All right, we have anything else you want to... Just, just uh, the embassy, uh, your thought on that. Oh, good. The, well, uh, so Trump recognizes Jerusalem as the capital. The capital of Israel has been Jerusalem since 1949. So the notion that an American saying, yes, the capital of Jerusalem, capital of Israel is, is Jerusalem, uh, that's I, I I honestly it baffles me that that's an issue. Jerusalem is not going to become an international city. It's a city of almost a million people. <laughs> you know, it is the largest city in Israel. It's twice the size of Tel Aviv. It's eight, actually eight hundred fifty thousand people. Sixty five percent of them are Jews. Thirty five percent of them are Arabs, and. You know, you could see a circumstance in which part of the city might conceivably go t into, you know, uh, Palestinian hands for a state. But Jerusalem will remain the capital of Israel. And it's insane that the world doesn't recognize it. It's just it's a it's holding on to a fantasy idea that the that the Palestinians themselves destroyed. Because in 1947, the idea the U.N. voted on a partition plan it said the Jews would have this. And the Palestine, and the Arabs would have this, and then Jerusalem would remain an international mm -hmm. city, and the Jews agreed to it, and the Arabs went to war, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And in the end, and J Jews and Arabs were living in Jerusalem together then, and in the end, the Jordanians ate up half of Jerusalem, and the and the Israelis had half of Jerusalem, and the Israelis are never leaving. Jews are never going to leave Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the holy city of Judaism. Yeah. Israel, the country of Israel is less important than the city of Jerusalem in some fundamental sense. So, so why now? Could, why, why the timing? Why, why this president? Why? Well, we know why. I mean, why was that he had to sign this way? And the weird thing is, this is the, the joke, right? He announces his recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The day that he has to sign this every six month waiver of the order that the embassy be moved. So he announces that Jerusalem is Israel's capital and he still signs the waiver. <laughs> so it's not that he didn't sign the waiver and therefore the capital must move to Israel immediately, which by the way, the embassy, which by the way, it could, there's a building that uh, there's an American consulate that could just become the embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, so he actually <laughs> signed the waiver. Uh -huh. The whole discussion point has for 20 years has been, you know, every president said I would not sign the waiver and move the and move the embassy to Jerusalem, and they all lied. And Trump, instead of signing the waiver, declares Jerusalem Israel's capital. It's by the way, nobody's goddamn business. Like the UN is going to vote tomorrow. The General Assembly is going to vote 
on an American president's decision on whether or not reckon, that's, that's it's none of their me. goddamn business. Mm-hmm. You well, know? Do, does it make the Palestinians, does it make it easier or harder for the policy? Like in my mind, like one thing is now they don't have a, a bargaining chip that they can give in on. On the other hand, it's such a emotional issue for them. Maybe in a certain way they can hide behind. Listen, it was already done. We, They're we, already hiding behind. We, we There's been no, there, have been, there have been no peace negotiations since 2008. So you think it doesn't matter either way? I don't think it matters. Yeah, I, I mean, it, you, what you said is the important thing. The minute that they want to come to the table, the minute that this fever is broken and that this psychotic illness that says we don't want a state unless we have it all, when the fever breaks, they will have a state. They don't want a state. Abbas doesn't want a state. You think he wants? You think he wants to run a country? You know, he can't run he this care ridiculous. About his people, no, I, I, I don't. I, I assume he cares about his people, but I, or I don't know. He doesn't. Not that nice to his people. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, you know, hasn't let them vote for eleven years. <laughs> but I so. think, don't you think a move like this will um, encourage? That will be an agenda for terrorism. To uh, recruit more people? Nah. I mean, everything is. It's like if everything is, nothing is. And yeah. the fact is, there is no terror. Like, we heard this the, the day that the thing, that the, the, the capital was declared. Like, oh, my God, there's going to be explosion, the Arab street, and there's going to be violence. And there was nothing. And you know why there was nothing? I was sick. You were sick. <laughs> you were sick. You were sick. And let me ask you, let me ask you a key question. <laughs> Is Egypt's president, Sisi, is he going to allow 500,000 people to go into Tahrir Square to demonstrate for any reason whatsoever? Uh, no. Ever? Uh, no. Right. So, But they could have started Egypt, in Tafada, no? is, uh Well, they can if they can could construct bomb factories. And- I, I just think that we were heading the right way with Saudi Arabia and Sisi and Egypt and all that. Trump could have waited a little bit more. And like you said, like a, a, it would uh, be there's, a great- There's always a reason not to do it. I, I, see, to- I don't see any evidence of that. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't see all. I, I don't see any evidence. Who's yelling and screaming? I just don't think the like, there was a rush. Screaming. There was a rush to move it right now. All you right. know what I'm saying? But anyway, I think we should have an episode just. Let's tell you something. You'll be finding about Obamacare. We had Obamacare. We have to offer it this year. Last year we didn't have to, but the year before we had to offer it. We offered it to 53 employees. Yeah. Not one of them took it. Every single wow. one of them preferred to pay the penalty. Wow. Rather than take the bronze plan, which was like 180 a month, $6,000 deductible. Right. And they had been talking about how, I mean, it per- makes perfect sense that when they take away the mandate, premiums may go up and that's kind of an indirect tax increase. Right. But they have not talked about the opposite of all these people who are paying the penalty who are getting a, essentially a tax decrease. Okay, that's the worst. That That's one of the most specious and factitious things that is being talked about now, which is you will hear people say, because of this bill, 13 million people are losing their health care. That is garbage. The The bill eliminates the penalty and eliminates the mandate for Obamacare, right? Every single person of those 13 million can, if they so choose, go into Obamacare. They are just not going to be penalized if but they don't. It. Yeah. They, it will be their personal choice not to be under that horrible useless, expensive, and, you know, inefficient umbrella that they think is more harm, that they're willing to risk. And by the way, think about the math of that, right? 
180 bucks. A, so that's, uh, that's, uh, $2,200 a year plus a $6,000 deductible. So, um, assume you don't get hit by a truck, <laughs> but you need to go to a doctor for something and you have to pay the yep. doctor $500. So you're $1,800. Like you're paying, you know, $2,100 and you have to pay the 500 and you don't get a, you don't get this, you know, you, you don't get any use until you hit a $6,000 number. Yeah. That's a horrible deal for a person who doesn't have a lot of money. Yeah. It may be a perfectly good deal. So it would too. be a reasonably good deal for me if I didn't have insurance. Um, although I don't think I would, I wouldn't get it. I don't think, uh, well, you know, whatever, but I mean, it's still, but you know, if you're making $40,000 a year, what kind of bet is that for you? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it it's awful. It's, it's amazing. Anyway, uh, Mr. Padhar, it's, it's beyond generous of you to come. And uh, also, I heard that you were at Harry Enton's trivia thing and you were actually tallying up, uh, I, 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 working I, working like a... <laughs> I was working. That was an amazing thing, by the way. You know, I guess it's sold out, right? But, you know, if you should keep doing that. We did another one. Yeah, I heard you yeah, said yeah, it yeah, sold yeah. out. It yeah. was, I couldn't believe this, this, the crowd. It was like 300 people there. Well, this is a, the the beauty of uh, this is the beauty of social media. Is that used to be if you wanted to do any kind of event, you, had, had, to, to you had to promote stamp postcards. And, and, yeah, there there are niche crowds out there yeah. for all sorts of fun things. Yeah, and now you can get them together, and it's yeah. really kind of well, wonderful. Especially yeah. with somebody like Harry and Steve Kornacki, that event sold out three weeks, two right, weeks. Right, but getting the word out, even even seven or eight years ago, would yeah. have just made the whole thing impossible. Just, you just couldn't get the word out. Yeah. Now you have a few things. It's free, you can, yeah. and and you fill it up, and everybody has a good time. I remember, like, uh, you added the Chappelle show, like in like we added it three o'clock in the morning when I was working here, three or five in the morning. Four shows were sold out. Chappelle, yeah. Chappelle, well, that's Chappelle. All right, but I, yeah, I heard about that. But I yeah. mean, like in five minutes, because yeah. of social media, people. Yeah, were, you know, John, John Mayer tweeted a show at three in the morning. I remember, and yeah. sold it out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. amazing. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Pleasure. It's yeah, it's amazing to have you. Would you like thank to share you. your social media or anything? Uh, or your show? Just at Jay Podhoritz <laughs> on Twitter. There you uh, go. Commentary magazine. Commentary magazine. Uh, dot com is uh, uh, right at the New York Post, nypost.com. I write at the Weekly Standard, weeklystandard.com. And, and you have a podcast. We have a podcast which you can get on iTunes, the Commentary Magazine podcast. I've given two subscriptions to, po- to Commentary you Magazine. You are a great I mean, American. You are a great American. <laughs> it's well, the best. You're a great melting pot we had, American. We had Amy Wax here, too. Who was oh, awesome. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Amy Wax has written for me. She's pretty times. fearless. She's amazing. She well, climbs under the, the table sh- like a wall. Yeah. Life. <laughs> okay. Thank Live you, from America.podcast.com uh, 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 and the comedy dot com. At China no, China Bria. Yeah, at Ch- yeah, China Bria. Ch- yeah. And uh uh R2 Deepu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone actually gave me a question for you through uh, me. I don't uh, know to, there's ahead. a lot of questions. No, just a quick question. Yeah. Uh is Live from America podcast on a break or over my favorite show on any form of media? Oh. Uh, uh, why would it be on back? a break? Oh, because well, because you're you talking about it on a break. Uh, you're talking about it while it's happening. By definition, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the question. No, we have. Though? That's the question. What I have. Yeah, I have a few questions for you. And I was, oh, but not now. Yeah, no, not no, now. Okay, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Thank you. Meeting adjourned. Meeting adjourned. You were listening to Live from America podcast. To contact us, please go to www.livefromamericapodcast.com. Brought to you by the Comedy Cellar and Rethink Production. 